Wow, that was a lot to process, right? If you just got done watching that pre-video, pre-service, pre-message bumper, um, then you saw a lot of questions that had answers around the Bible, around uh, morality, maybe the way that they lived their life. And I thought some of that was just absolutely fascinating. And some of it, I want you to know, uh, just kept me on the edge of my seat and having to bite my tongue because I wanted to engage a lot of that dialogue way more than just the questions at hand. But I knew the majority of those students were just there to get their $10 Starbucks gift card from me and keep it moving and get to their next class. Um, I also know that those, cl- those questions and those answers don't usually happen in a vacuum. They usually happen over the course of time with conversations. And like we talked about in week one, our gentleness starts to break through and break down some of those walls. And it's just not something that happens right there often. But what I did notice in a lot of these conversations that was kind of discouraging to me is that it almost seemed like there was this kind of script that had been laid out for them in, in ways that were... Uh, combative to Christianity, right? They had like this script of, well, you know, some of them are probably true. Well, it's probably not holistically true. Well, it's probably been edited. Well, it was in a different language. Well, it's been a long time since the Bible has become, uh, or was originally written down and has become read by us. And so there's just a lot of gaps, right? And so I wanted so badly to address some of those things with them, but the luxury that you get this morning is that I'm going to address some of those uh, conversations and comments that they had with you, because as we dive into this third week of our apologetic series, we believe uh, that's the thing we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the Bible and our morals as Christians and how those those things kind of shape up and give us this full picture that we have today. And so uh, what's our jumping off point? Because it seems clear that culture has shaped some of those answers and the church has shaped some of our answers as it should be, but where's our jumping off point? You notice some of those questions uh, and some of those answers, and I thought some of those things in particular were fascinating, like even the ones that didn't adhere to the biblical text said things like, oh, the golden rule, or uh, I feel like there's just this nice set of principles where I should be kind to people, and you see those principles kind of fleshed out in the New Testament um, from Jesus, and so it's fascinating that they would say those things and then in the next breath say the thing, the place where those morals and those values came from isn't completely true. So that's kind of where I want to start today. Is it completely true as a Christian? Should you believe the Bible is wholly true? Should you believe that it's without error? Is there no blemishes at all? Is it reasonable for you to believe that? Because that's one of the things we've been talking about throughout the course of the series, right? Do you have a reasonable faith? There's gonna be things that we can't know uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt, but the thing that we've been trying to drive home is to remind you and to affirm your faith and let you know, man, your faith as a Christian is reasonable. So as we keep this conversation going today, that's the in-house conversation. Christians, this is a conversation to hopefully encourage you. Uh, if you're not a Christian and you're just kind of flying by, you saw this Orchard, Orchard Facebook post and you wanted to watch, uh, I'm glad you're here. That's the conversation you're listening in on today. Uh, a conversation between believers saying, hey, here's why we think your faith is reasonable. If you're zooming in uh, and you're watching this conversation as someone who's not a Christian, hopefully it's valuable for you too. And you can kind of see some of the logic and reasoning behind our faith and why we think it's reasonable. But Is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is wholly true? That there shouldn't just be some parts you take and other parts you leave, but as a whole, the Bible is true. That's gonna be our jumping off point today. And so I wanted to kind of start here. I wanted to start with a secular source uh, in this. This is history.com, right? It said, what is the Bible? I think that's a great place to start. We're gonna put a framework around the conversation with the Bible, but before we do that, we kind of have to define what is the Bible the Christian Bible. History.com says this, says the Bible is the holy scripture of the Christian religion purporting to tell the history of the earth from its earliest creation to the spread of Christianity in first century AD. 
couple things that I think are fascinating about history.com's definition. A, it calls it the holy scripture, not just a sacred text. The other thing it does after calling it holy is it says, hey, it's really a historical documentation of what Christians believe. And I think that's going to play a big part in our conversation today. But before we go into that, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the outside sources and the logic behind some of that, I want to shoot you straight on the front end. I want to tell you that uh, I think right away, it's okay for a little circular reasoning as a Christian. And we're going to see some of that on the back end of the conversation today. But what do I mean? History.com called this text, the Bible, a holy uh, Christian text, holy, right? And so what makes it holy or what makes it sacred? I think to find that answer, you have to kind of look within the text itself. And so that's what we're going to do uh, to start the day today. You're going to see on the screen, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter writes this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Skip down to verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you have the both and there. You have the history, right? The eyewitness accounts that take place. And then you also have uh, what I think a lot of us acknowledge that supernatural piece to that. And Peter's saying very candidly, this is not a book where a bunch of people came together and had the same idea. This is a book where we think very clearly God orchestrated the ink on the page. He told us, this is the stuff I want you to put down. These are the accounts I want you to have in this book as the Holy Spirit compels you to write these things. Now, it's easy for you if you're not a Christian to kind of watch that and say, well, see, there it is. Your circular reasoning. You're saying, well, the Bible proves itself. And in a way, yes, and I'm okay with that. In another way, we're going to get to the pieces that are outside of the Bible that kind of affirm what the Bible says, right? Because if outside sources can say, hey, that makes a lot of sense, then we should maybe start to heed some of those things uh, that the Bible does say. So even if the Bible affirms that itself, affirms that it's an inspired book, I think that if those things are true, those claims are true, we can say, okay, there's something to this, much like the resurrection last week. So then what we're left with to do as critical thinkers, right, is decide, all right, is that true or not? It says it's inspired, the Bible itself. Is that true or not? Is there enough evidence around that claim for me to consider that it is reasonable that the Bible is an inspired book, not just something that man came up with? And so if you're a Christian today, I hope you're encouraged. If you're not a Christian, I hope that today your needle moves a little bit closer than considering uh, the fact that the Bible is the word of God. And now, is it the word of God? Yes. What does that mean? Do we go a little deeper? Are there some variables at play that have to be there for it to be the word of God? I would say also yes. And so uh, here is my first encouraging piece for you today, Christians. I believe the Bible is the infallible and inerrant word of God. What does that mean? Describing inerrant for you real quick. There's two things. They're separate. The first one is this describing what the word inerrant means. It means to say that the scriptures are inerrant literally means to say that they are without error. So there's not stuff in the wrong spot. They didn't shuffle things around, but this is exactly how God intended it to be. These are the pages. These are the words. He put them in order. He has them the way that he wants them to be. There's no error within the original text. 
Now, describe infallible, right? So I said inerrant and infallible. Infallible is a little bit different than inerrant. Inerrant has a lot to do with the linguistics, right? How is it written down? How is it preserved? Infallible is making an error, or, or I'm sorry, making an error is one thing, but infallible, the idea that it can't be wrong is a completely different thing. The word infallibility literally means not able to fail. It simply means that the scriptures are never wrong. They have never failed to be true or failed to come true. Every word of God is tested and proves true. Proverbs, God's word is truth, John 17, right? And so now I'm saying, yes, I think the pages and the words are in the order they're supposed to be in that God ordained them. And then I'm also saying that, hey, when you look throughout the history of this text, I don't think there's anything in there that is wrong or not supposed to be in there. I think wholly it is true and it has been proven true over the course of time uh, with prophecies, with all these different things. And so I think it is both inerrant and infallible. Now, why do I believe that? Is it reasonable for me to believe that both of those things are true? I would argue yes. And I would argue this is why, because I want us to recognize that the Bible itself is making the claim that it's infallible. Every word is from God and divinely inspired. And by the end of the day's conversation, I want you to see that it's completely reasonable to believe that as we look at this pile of evidence uh, in favor of the Bible as a historical text, you'll see that to be true. And so the Bible says itself right off the bat, hey, it's infallible. Second Timothy chapter 3.16 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, when you look at that, you might think, well, Paul's writing scripture, but at this point, he doesn't really have any scripture, so he must be talking about the Old Testament, right? Not necessarily check this out. Paul also writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, we saying they, Paul gave them the word of God. You accepted it not as word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. And so he's saying, hey, this stuff you're receiving right now is from God. And so as I put pen to paper, I want you to know, this isn't my opinion, unless I distinguish that it's my opinion. If I don't, then I want you to know that this is the word of God. So the Bible itself is saying, hey, I am putting all my chips in and I'm letting you know, this is what I think about myself. All these collections of texts over the course of the years, they're all saying the same thing. We think we uh, are divinely inspired. That's what these pages are screaming. Now, let's move the needle outside of the text itself a little bit, right? This is where it might get a little more appealing for you uh, as people who don't identify as Christians or uh, maybe critical thinking Christians like myself who, who really um, want something to grab hold of, right? To encourage me in my faith and to know that it's not just some fairy tale that we found one day. So check this out. I got some cool things for you too. So there's some arguments for the reliability of the Bible. And the first one uh, is this. The Bible literally has thousands of manuscripts that have been covered throughout the course of history recovered throughout the course of history that are all consistent with other manuscripts found in other places that have been preserved to show us the cohesiveness of the manuscripts that were all circulating around throughout certain time periods, okay? What does that mean? That means this. That means that over the course of history, we have found thousands of documents in different geographical locations that line up and are wildly consistent with other documents that we found in other places during other time periods. And so the text that we have today in the Greek is wildly similar to the text that we originally found and that I would argue was originally written. In fact, I'm gonna take it a step further because there are people smarter than me out there uh, and I wanna read you this quote from North Valley Community Church. This is uh, one of the sermons they preach on this topic. 
They said this, today we have over 25,000 manuscripts from antiquity that contain parts of the New Testament in the Bible. That's a mountain of manuscripts that document the words and works of Christ and the early churches. There are even more manuscripts containing the rest of the Bible. No other ancient writing is so well attested. It's stunning. Only the Iliad and the Odyssey come close to such a complete documentation, and yet we only have 650 or so copies of Greek manuscripts on record. That is a molehill compared to the mountain of New Testament manuscripts. Let me break this quote down for you. What they're saying is that uh, when we look at history, there are certain criteria that have to match to affirm historical documentation. What they're saying is that over the course of history, we found 25,000 Greek manuscripts that make up the New Testament, and we're saying they've all been cohesive at this point. They haven't been different. They've been saying the same thing at the same spot where you cite the same source. The closest thing we have to that that we still consider historically accurate is Homer's version of the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, which is Odysseus's coming back from the Trojan War documented, right? So a historical thing that happened, and we only have 650 copies of that. But we're saying we have 25,000 copies of New Testament scripture that have been collected at different time periods in different parts of the world throughout history that are all saying the same thing. That is incredible, that's fascinating. Well, what about this claim though that those things that we found were at one point edited, right? I mean, uh, a couple of the people you heard, the students you heard in the interview said, well, 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 it was written by man, it was written in this language or that, or how do we know it's not like a bad game of telephone, whatever, how do we know that's real? Well. Uh, I want you to check out this excerpt from reasonabletheology.org and listen to this. It says, the value of having a large number of manuscripts is that it's, it provides us with ample opportunity to compare writings, which is especially valuable when cross-checking manuscripts from different geographic areas or from different time periods. These are archeologists that are saying this, right? When making these comparisons, you can determine whether it's apparent that the documents were reliably copied from the same source and you can quantify how much they have strayed from that source by seeing where and how they differ. In short, here we go. Having an abundance of manuscripts shows us that copying scripture was not like a game of telephone. In fact, comparing the com incredible amount of manuscript evidence has shown that the New Testament is, wait for it, 99.5% accurate, and the vast majority of differences are in spelling or minor copyist errors. Most importantly, you should know that not a single variation in these thousands of manuscripts has been shown to affect a theological issue in any way. While there are undoubtedly differences among the manuscripts, we can have confidence that they stayed true to the originals because the copies themselves are so close to one another, despite being written at different times and in different places. And so check this out. The argument that this is just a giant game of telephone can go out the window because we're saying amongst all these different copies that we have, there is a 99.5% accuracy regardless of the time period it was written in or the geographic location it was written in. Coincidence, I don't think so. One of the things we say around the orchard all the time is it just so happens never just happens. And I think this is where you see God at work. And this is why I think you can see the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture because it is God preserving these things throughout the course of history so that we don't have a different word than he gave us, but we have the same word today. So there's just a couple of right off the bat arguments about the text itself, but here's one of my favorite arguments that comes from the text, right? And we kind of talked about this last week around the idea of the resurrection and Jesus, but most of the New, Te New Testament was written during the lifetime of those eyewitnesses of the events, 
right? If there was a problem, they would have caught it. Remember Jesus' resurrection last week in 1 Corinthians 15, verse six, Paul says, hey, there was over 500 people that saw this. If you have a rebuttal, just go ask them, right? You can go talk to them right now, crazy. And so for the, for the time frame of the New Testament, it's within one generation to the point where the authors are saying, hey, here's a real name. I'm actually citing a real source. If you want some follow-up information, go talk to him and his boys. Go talk to her and her girls, and they will tell you what they saw happen. This is not just me making this thing up. And so I love that argument. But here's one of the questions that I think uh, we ask a lot as Christians, right, coming down the pipeline next is, okay, well, I get it, that's what the Bible is, I get the claims the Bible makes about itself, but you know, the books that we have in the Bible weren't the only religious books ever written, so how do I distinguish? How do I know that we have all of the right books? How do I know that there's no other books that should be in there? Well, here's what I would say. I would say the reason we know that's true is because as Christians, we believe the books that make up our scriptures, make up our Bible, are viewed as God-breathed, right? The Bible says these are God-breathed scriptures, and so what does that mean? It means the early church thought that, which means on some level there has to be consistency, right? And I would say that some level is across the board where there is no inconsistencies amongst the theological beliefs of the people, right? If you believe this, it's because this text says this and we're not gonna differ from this text because it has to be consistent across the board. In fact, uh, they're called self-authenticating, right? Which, is, which means this, that we don't have to pick and choose which books we think make it in the canon. There's a rubric and a criteria that determines which books get to go and which books don't make the cut. And here's how this kind of rubric takes place. They have to self-authenticate. And the first one, uh, the first of these three criteria is this, the apostolic origin. Was this book written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. If that's true, okay, then we consider that book and now we start to look at the beliefs in that book and we start to say, okay, uh, this gives it weight immediately. Now uh, we can put this in the next category as opposed to an unknown writer who's gonna have far more rigorous things because his stuff um, probably doesn't line up in category two, right? So was it an apostle or an associate of an apostle writing these things, people that uh, were around with Jesus? Corporate reception is the second one. Was the early church receptive to this book in the first century? Because remember, uh, they still had rules that they adhered to. They still had principles they lived their lives by in the first century. And so when we look in our text, we can look at church history and say, okay, which of these books did these early churches adhere to? That gives us a pretty good idea of whether or not it is books that God intended for them to listen to because again, that first generation stuff. In fact, it was by 250 AD that Origen started to compile this list of books that we call the canon. 250 AD may seem like a long time to you, but don't uh, neglect the fact that that's only four generations away like we talked about um, last week. And so by the fourth generation, Origen had a pretty good idea of all the texts that the early church was using and started to compile this thing that we have called the canon of scripture. And then the cross-reference, right? This is one of the things I love about the Bible. What you will not find in your biblical text at any given point is a contradiction between one passage and another passage. And this is the cross-reference rubric for this piece of it, right? The third piece. If a passage cannot be cross-referenced where it's um, in violating another passage, then it does not make the cut. And so everything that you have in your Bible is completely coherent from the front cover to the back cover. There's gotta be no disputing what the word of God says from beginning to end. It's gonna be in perfect harmony and there's gonna be cross-references throughout it to not only say we don't have to neglect this, but to affirm it. And so uh, I think that's a very compelling piece of evidence because I think it's important to note that God does not contradict himself. And so if we're gonna call this an inspired book and we're gonna call it historically accurate and make sure we have the right amount of text, the right kind of text, the right texts altogether, we need to make sure 
they don't contradict each other. And so we don't really pick and choose which books belong in the Bible as people, but what we do is we recognize, okay, these are consistent. These are God-breathed scriptures from, uh, from apostles, from people throughout early church that say, hey, this is what God has told me. This is what pen on paper should look like. And it just so happens, never just happens. Those are completely consistent across the board to the point now where we have the same manuscripts that we can deduce the early church had to start the conversation. And I think this is an important piece because this is where I don't want to rule out the sovereignty of God, right? I say it just so happens, never just happens. I think in, the, in this conversation in particular with apologetics, it's a little bit different because we're not just looking at historical data, but we're looking at historical data that I believe has been preserved over the course of time by the sovereign God of the universe saying, hey, there is no divisiveness within this book. It is strictly cohesive. It is good from start to finish. You can trust it. You can believe it. There's not going to be any contradictions in your text. I think that's just another affirmation to the infallibility of scripture and the fact that the sovereign God of the universe has his hand on what we have today as our biblical text and the thing that we have translated from Greek to English. Now, what does that mean? Here's the actionable step as we kind of round this conversation out today. These conversations become relevant when you start to have conversations with unbelievers, right? The, the Great Commission tells you, hey, your job as a Christian is not to sit and ponder things in a closet for the rest of your life, but your job as a Christian is to go, is to be salt and to be light and to love on people, to do what Peter said in the first week of the service, always be prepared to give a defense, to do what Paul does when he goes to Athens and say, hey, that statue to an unknown God, let me tell you about him. I'm gonna share the gospel with you, right? That's our calling as a Christian. And so these conversations, I hope, encourage you, and they also become relevant as you start to have these conversations with unbelievers, but not neglecting that gentleness piece to this. And then for those of you that are kind of stopping by that we mentioned briefly, uh, I got one thing for you. There's one of, my, one of my favorite preachers, Andy Stanley. He says this. He's a phenomenal communicator, and he says this often. He says, living by scripture will make your life better and make you better at life. And so I guess my challenge for you if you're not a Christian, but you're hearing this conversation, is consider this. Consider maybe saying, okay, what does it look like if I do start to lean into this thing, the Bible, this faith of Christianity? What does it do for me if I start to consider the reality of some of these things? My question for you would be, if you don't believe it, then start to live in some of that world and just see how the principles in the Bible uh, as a whole start to make your life a little better as you start searching for truth and then not neglecting the reality that yes, these are good principles, but Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him and getting to that point where you get to experience not just the principles in the Bible fleshed out, but the manifestation of a relationship with the God of the Bible in your own life. That's my hope for you. That's my prayer for you. I hope you guys have all been encouraged by this conversation today. I hope the series has been encouraging for you. Uh, what I'm gonna do as we wind down is I'm gonna pray for you, uh, and then we're gonna kind of close the morning out and hope to see you guys next week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for an opportunity to uh, preach your word, yes, but also talk about your word, God, and talk about the confidence that we can have in your word because of what history shows us and because of what your uh, sovereign preservation over this thing shows us, God. I pray that this morning you would equip and encourage us, but God, don't let us neglect gentleness. Let us continue to lean into gentleness and love as we have these conversations, knowing that it's not an argument to be won, um, but a soul that we want to be with you in eternity forever, Father. We love you and we're grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.